Welcome to the Women Who Drone podcast. Join our community. Head to womenwhodrone.co to sign up for online courses, drone lessons, workshops, and more. womenwhodrone.co. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. As you know, we will be chatting today and learning from Dr. Catherine Ball, who is here. Thank you for being here. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking about the future of drone technology, how women can play a role in this emerging industry and technology. But first, I want to just give you all a brief introduction of who Dr. Catherine Ball is. So outside of also being an advisor to women who drone, uh, she is a scientific futurist, speaker, advisor, author, founder, executive producer, executive director, company director, and charity patron working across global projects where emerging technologies meet humanitarian, education, and environmental needs. Thank you so much, Catherine, for being here with us today. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. It's nice early morning here in Brisbane. It's hot again today. Um, so yeah, no, we're doing well. We're doing well. It's, uh, it's a shame to hear we've got bushfires across Australia already now, um, but let's hope that we uh, have a better season this year than we did last year. Yes, absolutely agree. And those are my dogs and this is the joy Yay, of well, my baby know, doing everything from minute. home. <laughs> um, so There's we no might have anymore. some... I know. Honestly, we might have some sound effects. That's just like the beauty of doing everything virtually. Um, so I do want to just uh, start with a little sort of anecdote story I want to share. Um, a little bit of background information. I first discovered your work. Uh, one second. Let me just grab the little puppy here and you. I'll just put her in my I love your puppies. I've been watching them on Instagram. I've been like, oh, yes. hello. This is Chloe. Hey, Chloe. Um, Yes, uh, she's my newest addition. My second one actually got her a few, few months ago. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, I a little bit of background information. I first discovered your work watching your TEDx talk and I felt so inspired by everything you shared there. Um, one thing that I really walked away with and I knew I had to somehow get in touch with you, um, which I eventually did, was at the end of your talk, you said, if you wanna go fast, you work alone. If you wanna go far, you go together. Um, and that sort of stuck with me. And it just made, it really just made me think about how I was going to continue the work that I do with women who drone, how we can continue to find these inspirational women like yourself to really uh, pave the way and share their inspiring stories. And so, um, yeah, I would love to start the conversation here. Uh, so with that in mind, can you tell us more about just, you know, your entrepreneurship journey and how it has led you to your passion for drone technology? <laughs> oh, oh, gosh, this is so, it's like um, Steve Jobs once said, you know, you can only join the dots looking backwards. And so um, it's been a bit of a crazy few years. I've been in Australia now for nearly 11 years. I've been independent as a business owner, entrepreneur, and now I'm an academic. I'm actually an associate professor in the practice of engineering at the Australian National University. And someone might say to me, but Catherine, you're not an engineer. How did you end up as an associate professor in the practice of engineering? And it's because when we go to university, when we study the things we do, or even when I did my gap year to Africa when I was 18, all of those things give us a wide horizon of skills which we can take from. And one of the things that really taught, I learned a lot in the corporate world, and I was in the corporate world for 10 years. I was doing like bachelor's and PhD for like 10 years, corporate world for like 10 years, and now I've been kind of independent for like five, six years. Um, and so all of those things that I learned on that journey have added to where I've got to now. 
So sometimes you might be stuck in a job and you're thinking, well, what, the, what on earth am I doing in this job? What am I potentially learning from this job? And that's when I say, well, look, every job has something that you learn from it, even if it's something that you don't want to do. And my mum's very good with advice, she's very sage. She's a Capricorn. She's a lawyer. She's very, you know, she's a family lawyer for years. So she's very sage, very calm advice. And she would always say to me, well, if you don't know what you want to do, just remember what you don't want to do. And then that will help you filter your journey. And so this is how it was for me. I have tried a lot of different things with a lot of different businesses and a lot of different job opportunities. And some of them just weren't going to work. And I've actually closed more startups than I've currently got running because I had to try them. I had to go there to learn whether that business model would work, whether that business partnership would work, whether it was actually a business or whether it was just a hobby, whether it was actually a business or it was actually me putting all the energy and someone else was just taking the life out of me, you know, and whether people were using me or working with me. And one of the biggest things I learned from all of this is that you have to punch at your own weight and above. If people come from, from other places and say, we need your help to do this, or I need you to help me do this, um, fine, mentor them, be a shoulder to cry on, but don't put your money in. Um, and so both of those, every time I have children, I close a business. So they were both quite painful. And so I've not had maternity leave. I've not stopped. And so I took the academic role on because I was already kind of doing that work anyway. Drones for me have been an incredible lever around communicating science opportunities, especially to younger people, because drones are very sexy, very exciting. Um, and they also are actually, there is no, and this might sound controversial, there is no drone industry as far as I'm concerned, because drones are now across every industry. They've got to the stage in Australia where you're deregulated under two kgs. So you don't even need a license to operate commercially in Australia under two kgs. You can just follow the rules and there are some rules you have to follow. So that, that whole accessibility to drone technology completely changed. And when that completely changed, I realized people's business models really have not caught up with this opportunity. And yes, there may be education pathways, you know, getting kids in, into it in schools, which is what I tried with the first She Flies business. And when that business didn't work, we went our separate ways and I kept the trademarks. I kept the brand with me because I felt that was quite an important conversation. And it was built, I think, around um, a lot of my personal brand. And so I've now um, started working with Girl Geek Academy who have the She Flies brand. So that original TEDx talk now is a bit out of date. And I had to update some of the web links and things to make sure people go to the right She Flies <laughs> website. Um, because that's, again, a bigger conversation. We're not just talking about teaching girls with drones in schools. We're talking with girls about aviation careers, about aerospace careers, about um, interplanetary skills, you know, jobs, jobs on the moon, jobs on Mars. What does space medicine look like? All of these things ties back to she flies and it's not just about teaching girls with drones in the classroom. Um, and so for me, that's been a really interesting journey. How do you take your personal brand, your personal skills, that wide horizon that you've learned from and make money from it? How do you make profit? How do you feed yourself, clothe yourself, house yourself? How do you have children <laughs> in your late 30s and early 40s? Um, and how do you work with your, my husband's my business partner. So, you know, how do you work at home and at work? Do you, this whole working from home thing, I'm like, we're not working from home. We're now living at work. <laughs> and the thing is, I was already doing that and it was really easy and it was just me doing it. When it's the whole world doing it, it's really intense. It's just like, where, why aren't you away on your coffee breaks? Why are you, why is it 24 seven meetings are now occurring? Um, and so, yes, it's been a really interesting journey. And drones for me have been a great platform and they've evolved so much in the last 10 years. 
So the very first project where I really cut my teeth on them were the long range reconnaissance submilitary grade drones that were flown by pilots that had 5,000 hours on these aircraft. And we were looking for turtle tracks on offshore sandy islands in Western Australia. That work's never been repeated and I can't publish it because it's under confidentiality agreements. But that was probably the first thing for me where I realized that, and I'm a board director as well now, and I'm getting more and more board positions at the moment. And as a board director, especially now in coming into 2021, the onus on innovation is actually going to be stronger. In the past, innovation was always ring-fenced and risk-averse, and it was over here in terms of business models. But now innovation has to be in everything we do because the world has really changed really quick. And if you're not able as a board director to embrace change and embrace risk and rank it accordingly, then you're going to be in trouble. So that's a very long answer to a very short question, Elena, but <laughs> I don't know how to answer it, which is probably why I just did that. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, thank you for all of the information. Um, I think it's really interesting. You're completely right. Um, the the existence of the drone industry is you're you're on point. This technology is being used for so many different use cases around the globe that it's hard to just pinpoint that it's only its own industry or it's in with within one industry. So I think that. Um, yeah, that is a very interesting thought there. And I didn't ever think of it that way, but it totally makes sense. Um, sort of pivoting, uh, just like you mentioned, you know, the transformation of working, you know, virtually you were already doing it, you're already working remote, but now, you know, you're also working with your uh, husband in the house and just sort of the times we're going through. And I know that you're the founder of World of Drones and Robotics Congress. And I am actually curious to one, understand more of how you kickstarted this um, journey. And two, given that this year was the first time it was virtual, what are sort of, you know, just how was that experience for you? Well, I'm about to give you some big surprise. We were hybrid this year. So we were the first conference in the world to go fully hybrid. Australia has been completely right. locked down, except here in Brisbane, we've got no COVID cases. So we're almost able to do things as normal. Um, when we ran the conference back in November, we were still restricted in many different ways. Oh my gosh, we have had to write and rewrite and write and rewrite COVID safe plans. So we spent a lot of money getting the audio visual right, because the last thing you want to do is sign up to a conference and then you're stuck with a bad Zoom channel or you're stuck with a bad YouTube channel. And in fact, on the Thursday that we opened the conference, YouTube had a global shutdown that morning. So thank goodness we weren't relying upon YouTube to do our audio visual. So we were basically audio visual of the quality of like an international newsroom for two days. So we had lovely Dave beaming in from California and like emceeing, and emceeing a panel where we had people dialed in from all over Australia and the UK and all these sorts of places. It was really brilliant. They were just up on the screen, like they were almost sort of there. So um, we had people emceeing from all of the different cities and actually people physically on the stage and people beaming in. And it just was so smooth because we'd spent the money on getting the audio visual quality right. So I think hybrid is going to be the way forward for the events industry. And in the last five years, I've learned a lot about running successful events. And the key is now with this, we always sort of wanted to have an online presence. It's why we've got the YouTube channel where we put our videos up um, after the event so people can watch bonus content. One of your, lo your lovely videos on there at the moment um, in terms of bonus content on World of Drones and Robotics um, YouTube channel. Please, please like and subscribe. Um, and one of the key things, <laughs> one of the key things for us really is 
it's that communication of information to areas where they could never physically afford to come to Australia. So we had people beaming in from remote areas of Nepal. We had people beaming in from Zimbabwe. Um, I got in touch with Patrick at uh, We Robotics and gave them a load of access points across their networks globally. Um, and it meant that we also had, even, even here in Australia, we've got remote, remote communities and areas where people just can't travel in to the major cities. It's just so expensive, let alone with COVID in the way. But this gave us then a lever to switch from you have to physically attend here to you can physically attend if you want, but you can also dial in and get really high quality access to it, you know, exclusive content. You can ask the Q&A of the speakers as if you were in the room. And everybody who was in the room had to use the same app to ask the questions as the people who weren't in the room. So it was, you know, equal as we could possibly get an experience in terms of that interactivity for online access. But the reason why the conference exists in the first place is, and this is what I would say to anybody watching this, if you identify a niche or if you identify an open goal, go for it. When I did that work with the long range drones in Western Australia, I was the project director on that. I had to manage 10 different areas of pain for us to even get that project over the line. The first thing I did was doubt myself, and this is maybe a trait that we're taught as women, um, is that you're not necessarily the first person to do it. John Lennon said, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. And so I immediately went, oh, crumbs. Well, someone else must have done this first because I can't possibly have been the first to do this. And I was the first to do it. I was the first person to project direct, um, you know, to be the director of a really complicated, complex, CONOPS, SYNOPS, multidisciplinary, transponder, submilitary grade, long range, beyond line of sight. We were flying those babies 400 kilometers from where we launched them, right? So being able to do that in an area where there's planes and helicopters and people flying around takes a lot of planning. It took us nine months to get the health and safety right for a five day mission. Um, and, you know, I look at the conference and I go, well, you know, I, there I was in the corporate world, desperately looking at ways to connect with people around the business side. So this isn't about being a tech expo because the latest buzzy thing is interesting, but it's not my MO. My MO is solving problems. And so another key thing I'd probably say to people is we can find lots of solutions, but the difference between somebody who's really smart uh, at business, in academia, in the corporate world, are the people that can identify the problems. If you can identify the problems, then the solutions will appear. There's no point, like I don't, whenever I invest now in startups and on the stock market, I don't invest in solutions, I invest in problems. And so if you can think about where the problems are, because you know that they will get answered. So this is the problem that I had. The problem that I had, but there was no place for me to talk to academics, governments, industry, end users that were my clients at the time. And I had a list of 90 clients, nine zero, 90 clients that I was targeting, talking to, working with around how to use drones in their business. And this was 10 years ago. So this is before the drones that we have nowadays. This is really difficult. The EB and the Aerosol were basically your choices. There were no DJI drones to speak of really at that point. They were only just coming into fruition. The Phantom One, your flying camera, your flying gimbal, I think they even called themselves. So it was a really different world. And so I thought, well, crumbs, there's nowhere, there's nowhere. Even into places like Interdrone and stuff were so different to the Australian market. AUBSI, different to the Australian market. Commercial UAVs conferences, too busily focused on selling registrations rather than working with industry because they were run by organizations that make money from running conferences. 
I was like, we need an industry-based conference that's business focused. You can hear my baby crying in the background now, probably. Um, and, uh, and so that's why we created it. Again, I identified this niche. I looked to see what the industry was doing, what the associations were doing, and they were focusing what they're really good at. So the AAUS are really good at discussing regulation. That is their thing, and that is fine. But the regulation was only part, as a project director, the regulation was one part out of 10 that I needed to answer. And they couldn't answer the other nine. They could only answer that one for me. So I was like, well, create them, see if it works. And here we are four conferences later, five years later, and we just won a Brisbane Lord Mayor's Business Award as the outstanding micro business. We won that two weeks ago. So, you know, give me an award. It's been too long since I've had an award. Um, but the, uh, you know, that long range turtle work and the work I was doing in the corporate world led me to win the National Corporate Businesswoman of the Year in Australia in 2015. That was the, that was the um, award that I then leveraged to create my own independent career. Don't waste awards. Go for them, win them, become a finalist in them, and then use them. Don't be shy. I love that. That's a uh, super inspiring. Um, and you know, it's it's. You said you're, you're four four conferences later. You got this award. Um, I mean, just out of curiosity, what would you say have been sort of the biggest impacts? Um, I know the award is one, but maybe in terms of just like partnerships that have stemmed from these conferences, or maybe projects that got started, or thing like maybe your highlights that you could share from. Uh, just the the making and the creation of this Congress? You know, one of the biggest things that I love is that I've been able to meet people like yourself. So I traveled to Chicago to the AUVSI conference because they had me there as a representative, representative of uh, uh, women that work with drones, but also um, as an Australian person talking about the regulatory piece on the global regulation panel there. So I got to meet people like yourself. So I was so morning sick. I was barely comprehensible. Oh my gosh, I was I so morning I remember that. Sick. I don't know how I... <laughs> Oh, mate, I went to New York for the first time in my life and I'm sitting in a hotel room just wishing I was back in Australia. It was no fun. There were no Manhattans in Manhattan for me, I can tell you that fun. But one of the biggest things that I've really loved watching from the conference perspective is actually watching other people use it as the platform to grow and create their businesses and curate their businesses and grow their networks. So we had lovely Bashir uh, Khan, who's a CEO of Air, Air Matrix. It's um, an Air... Uh, UTM or RPM as we call it, remotely traffic, remote traffic management company based out of Toronto in Canada. The Canadians are doing some really interesting work. We had some cracking Canadian presenters this year um, and people can still watch it by the way. The conference is still online and available till the end of March. So there's some wonderful projects there and, and it's, that's what I love is so that Bashir came all the way to Brisbane and I basically helped him with some business introductions and he grew his business and he met, he won work and he made contracts working both with Australians. But the key one for me was he was sat in a meeting with the Japanese drone industry. So he'd come all the way to Brisbane to meet with the Japanese. And that is the key about Australia, right? Australia is the gateway for Western society to meet with Eastern society in terms of the business world. Australia has been used as a test bed um, for a number of different Japanese companies before they go to a Western market. So Toyota, for example, has traditionally used Australia to test their cars, to test their names of their cars and whether they should change the names or what market it might fit. And there's this vehicle that's been reasonably successful that you might have heard of called the Land Cruiser, that basically they tested the Land Cruiser on the Australian market before going to the US and Africa and Europe and, Europe and the Middle East. 
um, and that's been rather successful for Toyota, one might suggest. So um, we've actually got a very strong relationship with Japan. I'm really proud of that. We've got MOUs and partnerships in place with Canada, China, Japan, the German-speaking drone association UAV DAF, which is based in Germany, and also the UK, um, which was huge. So the DPI actually won our International Partner Award this year. The Japanese um, drone, drone Association won it last year. So we have been using the conference not just as a conference. And so we're actually, re we're reinventing everything for 2021. And World of Drones conference has become World of Drones and Robotics. And inside that, we have the events. We're gonna have four events in 2021. You're very welcome to take part in all four of those babies. Um, we're gonna have four events in 2021. And we're also doing more business matching. We're doing more trade work. Um, effectively, this year, over 40 countries took part in World of Drones and Robotics. All drones are robots, not all robots are drones. We've spent a lot of money going out into market. So we spent money traveling to China. We spent money traveling to Japan and South Korea. Um, and we had a really interesting South Korean company launch into the Australian market this year. So Doosan is a multi-billion dollar South Korean company that uses hydrogen fuel cells. So these babies can fly for hours rather than just tens of minutes. Um, it's really exciting. So hydrogen fuel cell drones, which is something I've been watching and waiting for for a really long time. I was really proud of that. So they, they recognized our importance in the Australian market and used us to enter the Australian market. That for me, I was just like, oh, they know who I am. It was a bit crazy. I was like, you know who I am? <laughs> you know what we That's do? That's really awesome. Awesome. No, I think that's really incredible. I think the, the beauty of developing events, platforms, using social um, to connect people is ultimately, you know, the, the, what, what provides like the, the greatest feeling to the creator, I think, is you're, you're seeing everybody make these connections and then innovate with each other and um, grow their work or create new projects. Uh, so uh, going along that route and kind of pivoting, I want to talk more about Girl, uh, Girl Geek Academy. Uh, I know that you are very involved and I would just love to learn more about your involvement and um, whatever you can share about Girl Geek Academy uh, when it comes to, I guess, women paving the way for younger generations because they do work closely with young girls and um, sort of, you know, any projects you want to share share or the the progression of working with them so girl geek academy has been around for a long time and they've been founded by some amazing women um and they've worked internationally they've got they've um, launched in samoa already they do have a target of different age groups but the she flies one you can actually sign up right now if you're interested to be a she flies ambassador for girl geek academy so they're going to be then basically helping promote people's profiles. What they do as well is they match young girls, make sure they have an older female uh, mentor. So when they come and do coding classes or drone classes or anything like that, they've got that older female mentor with them that provides that role model so they continue it. So you can pump STEM into girls in school. Then you can go STEM, 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 girls, girls, girls. It means absolutely nothing. Because when they go home, it's the stereotypes that their parents reinforce. It's the stereotypes that the television reinforces and their social media reinforces. And so you need to have that older female role model to constantly reinforce the idea of STEM and girls. And that's what I love about Girl Geek Academy is that girls are allowed to be girls and they're allowed to be geeks 
and it's cool. And I am a complete bona fide geek. I am a complete geek. I am a Star Wars geek. If I was on Mastermind, which is this TV show, you know, that tests your specialist subjects, mine would be Star Wars, episodes four to six. Like, I could probably write you the scripts out from those movies. Like, that's what I was brought up on. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Star Wars, A New Hope, doesn't even pass the Bechtel test. You know, it's pretty bad yeah. in terms of re female representation. And so if we look at some of, like, the ways in which we can access um, girls' psyches from a very young age about the opportunities that are open to them. And this isn't about saying, oh, you know, if you're a girl, you can do anything. Because I've never heard anyone say to a boy, and I'm a mother of sons, I've never heard anyone say to a boy, oh, it doesn't matter that you're a boy, you can do anything. And I think that's so toxic. We've, we've got it reinforced in us that we have to tell girls that despite their gender, they can still do anything. And you see what I mean? It's a very, very different nuance in how we accidentally reinforce the things we're not wanting to reinforce. And that's why I like Girl Geek Academy, because they're just shameless, like, yeah, we're just out here and we're doing what we want to do. Like, do you want to join? Like, it's just really inclusive. Um, and it's really inclusive to women of all gender identities as well, which I really like. Um, and so we've got the She Flies. So you can literally go to Girl Geek Academy and then go to their She Flies link and you can sign up as a She Flies ambassador. We've got so many cool things happening in 2021 and there's some really interesting stuff on the horizon that I cannot talk about. One of That's the things okay. <laughs> that I have noticed, we get stalked a little bit and get our ideas nicked a little bit. So we have to little, little bit secret squirrel about some of the, the projects that are coming up to prevent the, the piracy of our IP. <laughs> Let's put it that well, way. Well, looking looking polite. forward to no, it's okay. <laughs> looking forward to what's coming. Um, I do 100% agree with you. Storytelling and just stories in general um, about women mentors that you can really uh, relate to is a very powerful thing. Um, I know that for women who drone, we're constantly sharing uh, inspiring stories, including yours, uh, to just continue to motivate younger generations who might not even think that this is something they want anything to do with. Um, but as soon as, you know, they might watch a video or read an article or listen to a story, then they're more inclined to give it, give it, a, um, give it a go. Uh, we need so to be normal. We need to normalize women in everything, yeah, women in everything. Absolutely. And, you know, diversity as well doesn't just come down to gender. Like we need to normalize mm -hmm. diversity because one thing I'll tell you right now as an investor and as a board director, the key measure, and this has been shown out of Harvard Business School, it's been shown out of McKinsey and all the studies that they do. The key measure to a successful business is the diversity on the board. The full diversity in all of its ways on the board. And I think the next phase around diversity will be around um, neurodiversity. So people who might be considered to be on spectrums. Um, mm -hmm. That idea, quite frankly, none of us are in it. I'd hate to be called normal. I think normal is probably the most toxic word. Um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I, I often hear people say, well, that's not really normal. I was like, my response right. to that is always, well, who defines normal anyway? Anyway. Um, because, you know, that's, I honestly, <laughs> that's my response to that. <laughs> there is like, who gets to define that? <laughs> um, not, speaking yeah, of exactly. boards. Not, even not me. Yes, not definitely not. Um, I agree with you. That's just not a word that I ever will say but no, um <laughs> same same <laughs> uh speaking of, of advisory boards uh that uh leads me to uh you're also on the advisory board uh at the schmidt ocean institute could you tell us more about your work there with that organization Do you know it's so funny i um i sometimes 
when people read that introduction about me, I just get so confused because I'm just sort of like, I just still don't understand how these things have come across my path. And that's not me humble bragging. Like, I really, I have imposter syndrome terribly. I have postnatal anxiety. Like, I have this thing where I doubt myself more than anyone else could possibly ever doubt me, right? So it's, um, it's a terrible trait of mine that I sit here and go, I have no idea how they asked me to do that. So if I was to answer this question, if I was my own PR person and I wasn't me um, answering this question, well, the honest truth is that I was on the X Prize. Uh, I was a judge on the X Prize, the Shell Ocean Discovery X Prize, where we were looking at underwater drone mapping of the ocean floor and how we could use that to map there's a big plan uh, to map the entire ocean floor by 2030. Now think about it, that's only nine years away. So we want to map the entire ocean floor by 2030. And the only way we're going to do that is with underwater drones. So the X Prize had this wonderful X Prize looking at all these different ways that technologies were developing to be able to map the entire ocean floor. And so it was off the back of that that I was then connected into, and I obviously performed quite well as a judge, and I was connected into um, the, the network of people in California that are involved in these things, like Peter Diamandis, you know, and all of that group that have been working, you know, I mean, even Elon Musk worked with them on their Education X Prize, and I'm sort of like, can we just all have a meeting of all the X Prize judges, please, so I can just say, you know, just be in the same room as Elon Musk, you know, fangirling, but, um, um, and also telling him how he can, you know, work with girls more in SpaceX and, uh, and work with women more. <laughs> Um, though they do have a female boss at SpaceX, so I can't complain about that. So, um, yeah, so then my mate is then now, she, she's a friend, personal friend, professional contact, is now at the Schmidt Ocean Institute. And she sort of said, Kath, would you be possibly interested to be on this? Because she knows about all of my identification of problem skills, my ability to pick out new technologies, my ability to test startups as to whether they're going to work or not, uh, because I've got all of that experience already in my own life. And um, so I said, yes. Yeah. So we've had our first set of meetings. Um, I was so humble. I'm sitting there, you know, there's people like advisors to the ocean elders, people that have worked on the United Nations Oceans programs. Eric and Wendy Schmidt that created this, you know, they are like the creme de la creme of, of Google and Silicon Valley. And I was just like, the fact that they even know who I am is just bonkers. Um, but, but in all seriousness, the science that we're going to be able to do, the science that they've already done blows my mind. And if I can have a small piece in that, one of the things I've been saying lately is that my work are a long love letter to my sons. And like, what can I do now to help protect this planet so they've got one that's livable on um, when they're my age? Because climate change is very real and climate change is causing us problems. Like here in Australia, we've got half of Fraser Island just burned. Again, we've got water bombers out again. This is happening more frequently. Storms are happening more frequently. Extreme weather is happening more frequently. Um, and our oceans are going to pay a big price. Our oceans are our lungs. You know, did you know every second breath we take comes from the ocean? And yet we abuse it in ways and we allow it to be abused in ways that is just unconscionable to our own survival. Like, so... The fact that the Schmidt Ocean Institute's been working around Australia this year, it's been really interesting. They've been out on the Great Barrier Reef. They discovered a brand new species of walking scorpion fish, which I thought was a huge announcement. And then a week or two later, they discovered an entire new reef system that had never been mapped before. Completely new to modern science, a brand new reef. So, you know, we worry about extinctions. The thing is, we should be very worried about extinctions and the level of extinction that we're going through and the loss of biodiversity that we're going through. 
Um, and our encroachment on Mother Nature will bite us. And it's bitterness this year because that's where this virus has come from, is our encroachment into Mother Nature. And we will get more pandemics the more we bite into Mother Nature. Um, but I also have hope because we have scientists like the Schmidt Ocean Institute who are out there mapping brand new things that have never been seen before. And I guess the key about the oceans is it's just such a big, almost undefinable thing. And you can only really protect the things you love and you can only love the things you understand. So what we really need is for everybody to understand more about the oceans. And this is why mapping the ocean floor is going to be huge. It's, it's the world's largest undiscovered museum. You know, not just the biodiversity, but also of human activity, you know, wrecks and various interesting things. We'll hopefully find MH370. You know, the idea that we'll be able to see and map and protect the ocean floor. If we can't map it, you can't protect it. So that's why I was really humbled and very excited to be getting involved with the Schmidt Ocean Institute, because they have great vision and they have money. They, they want to do things that make the world a better place. And that for me, I'm just like, sign me up, sign me up. <laughs> So yeah, very me too. To <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's really, that's really incredible. I think um, I'm fully there with you on the environment. I am an environmentalist at heart. It's uh, some of the, you know, I was a age 16 first job. I was bagging groceries. And while I was doing it, all I could think about was the fact that we were not recycling the grocery bags that were being returned by customers and they had this thought and idea that we were but in fact I was forced to just throw them in the trash can at the back of the store and so that just turned into this sort of like curiosity of what was happening to these bags which then turned into this whole research project in college which then turned into a documentary about plastic bag use in California which now 10 years later they are banned it took a while but you know I I made it a point to really help people understand their impact when it comes to single-use plastics. I made a, a, a dress out of 400 plastic I remember bags. Your dress. Yes, yeah. and I walked through a grocery store with a boombox reciting all the you know statistics about how many bags we were using. And so this is a very um, you know this is a, a passion point of mine and just trying to figure out one how to clean up the ocean. It's sort of the things that I think about at night, like how can drone technology really help this and. I think it's incredible. Uh, mapping the ocean floor is 100% a start. Not, I never really thought about that. So it's incredible to hear that this is in the works. Um, but yeah, I constantly think about how can these two things emerge and to your point about, hey, the drone industry isn't uh, a thing. It can be used everywhere. Um, I wholeheartedly believe one day drones are going to take a major role in saving our earth. And trying to clean it up in a way, but um, kind of, you know, after this spiel and thinking about what you had mentioned, which was um, ultimately, you know, defining what these problems are, is there sort of a checklist or something that you think about when you are trying to figure out what are the problems of the world that need to be solved? How do you come up with what they are? How do you get started? I feel like I'm always trying to do this and sometimes it works, but I'm still like, I'm still hunched over. How am I going to save the planet with drones? <laughs> well, it's education is key, right? So here in Australia, yeah. we've now got this, this national project that I think was $5 million out of the federal government. And it's basically gonna be Australia's smart drone cloud. So people can upload information into the drone cloud so that scientists can then use it. 
So um, people will be able to contribute to that. Something like that in the States would be a really good idea. And probably the USGS is the place to sort of start talking about that because they're the ones with all the satellite imagery and quite a lot of drone imagery. Nature Conservancy has a lot of work going on with regard to this. It's almost like doing an asset, like a biodiversity asset assessment. So we talk about using drones for like railway assessments or building assessments, but why don't we do it to do a biodiversity assessment? Um, so maybe connect with the Nature Conservancy, because I reckon with your ambassadors and the power of your ambassadors and the work that the Nature Conservancy does, the idea of creating a national drone-based biodiversity assessment, I think would be key, because if we don't know what we've got, we can't protect it. Recently, we did some work at ANU, the Australian National University, down in Tasmania, where we thought there were a few thousand left of these parrots, this particular type of parrot. It turns out there's only a couple of hundred, and it's going to be extinct in the next few years. And they're just like, you know, they're like, ah, because we thought we had more time and we don't have the time. And they did a genetic assessment to work out exactly how many numbers they thought they might have. The key thing here is protecting habitat. The way nature conservation has always typically worked has been as a fuzzy animal that everyone cares about, like a giant panda or, you know, something fuzzy and nice. But that's not the key. The key is protecting their ecosystems, protecting their habitats. So how do we do that? Well, quite frankly, climate change is probably going to be the biggest mover towards biodiversity loss now. And so right now, I could say to you, what investments do you have? What kind of electricity do you use? What kind of bank do you use? And when you look at all of the systems that you particularly as an individual, you think this problem's too big. I can't do anything about this. You let the invisible hands of economics do your fighting for you. You pick an electricity company that prioritizes renewables. You go to your pension fund or what we have here in Australia is our superannuation fund and you pick the green superannuation fund, which targets renewables um, and low environmental impact or environmental restoration is part of how they operate. Look at the bank that you use. Does the bank that you use carbon offset? Are they carbon neutral? Are they investing in fossil fuels? So you can choose according to your own moral compass. I will not use a plastic bag. That's great. But your, if your pensions are funding the production of plastic bags, then you not using a plastic bag actually means nothing. And so what we need to do is set up a way in which money talks. We know that money talks. And if one person moves their money, you might not think it's a lot. But if 40,000 people move their money, that's a lot. And so take that time, maybe this weekend or whenever, and sit and look through. Where are my pension schemes? Where are my investment schemes? Where, which bank am I working with? What's their environmental? What's their climate change policy? Do they invest and do they, sub, do they subsidize mining in places where it's you know, been unlawfully done? Or do, you know, what has that done that you don't want to be assigned to that anymore? And so mm-hmm. it's a really difficult one because it's not easy sometimes to find the answers to all of that. But I think that's a really easy step that doesn't cost you a penny. It doesn't cost you a penny to move where you get your electricity from, really. Yeah. That's, that's excellent advice. I think, you know, most people are so hung up on um, the convenience of, you know, using those, you know, single use plastics and, um, you know, maybe even they're already stopping, you know, the habit of using them, but like taking a bigger picture and looking at your bank is, yeah, it's a whole other move. And to your point, yes, I think the more people that can take that time to kind of look at where they're putting their money and who they're giving their money to and what kind of you know, values they have around the environment, we might all like 
be really surprised on where our money is going. Um, and the thing is, money talks, right? So if enough yes. of us move and enough of us care about it, then what will happen is, and what has happened, I've seen it happen, is that you then find some of the big players who, again, realize, oh, hang on a sec, we are going to lose money if we don't start doing this. They start mm-hmm. doing it. And we actually have somebody here in Australia that's suing their pension fund for not protecting their future against climate change because they've been investing in things that are fossil fuel based. So you can get, they're actually suing them. I'm actually interested to see what happens with that. And that's here in Australia. So yeah, yeah. interesting. Absolutely. We we are Um, powerful together as a collective. We are. It's just, you know, I always say, um, you know, it's one person can do something and it will always be better than doing nothing. And that could Mm -hmm. be, you know, not, take accepting that plastic bag, not, you know, accepting those plastic utensils. But I mean, this goes a little bit further and really understanding and defining where you're putting your paycheck. Um, So I know we're going to have some time for some questions, um, but I will just add one more question in before we jump into questions from the audience. Uh, So I just wanted to kind of get an idea of where your inspiration comes from. Uh, is there, you know, something, someone who has had a tremendous impact on you as a leader that has pushed you to become, you know, like what gets you to be so driven and um, anyone who, who you want to share that maybe has mentored you um, or has had like a pretty great impact on your life? Oh, you know, I've just got a working class chip. Anyone who's British will understand that. I'm a working class <laughs> kid from quite a poor background. So I've got this working class chip on my shoulder. Um, my mother has been a huge influence on my life. She refinanced her house so I could finish my PhD. You know, we've been on the edge of what's capable from, from somebody coming from that level of socioeconomic background. Um, and I think that her, her unwavering support of me and my crazy, stupid ideas um, has been there my entire life. And I just, I'm so grateful for her support. In terms of non-family uh, mentors and things. There's a couple that spring to mind. We've got the distinguished professor Genevieve Bow, who started the 3A Institute at the ANU. So she is an Intel senior fellow um, and she offered me an honorary associate professor position at the Institute in a heartbeat because she knew what I could bring to the table. To be recognized by somebody who is so globally respected, um, it's similar to my X Prize and my Schmidt Ocean Institute experiences. To be recognized by people that have got more, like, they're almost, they're people that I want to be. And so to be recognized by someone like that is, is just mind blowing. Um, and Genevieve and I have become incredibly good friends and she's a personal mentor of mine. And she's been incredibly supportive of me, particularly in the last few months we've been going through COVID, um, but also because of having young children and just how exhausted I have been and just how tired I have been and just how desperate I've been to prove my worth. And she's just been a really great steady hand on the wheel for me um, for this last 12 months, really, in terms of having my second child. Second child is the destroyer of worlds. The first child, you can pretty much live your life. Uh, the second child is the destroyer of everything you ever knew about yourself or the world or how you work <laughs> or what sleep is or anything. Um, so I suppose in that in that vein, you know, my children are incredibly great mentors because I'm very good at prioritizing people and not myself. And so now when someone asks me to do something and I don't have time because it's going to take time away from my children, I say no. Whereas in the past, I would have self-sacrificed my time. So they've been very great at allowing me to 
actually prioritize where I spend my time and how I spend my time. They've been my oxygen mask to a certain extent. My husband has been a massive supporter of mine, Jeremy. Without J-Dog, I don't know what I'd do in terms of some of the production values that he does, the bookkeeping values that he does, the, you know, this sharing of the load. The idea of finding a husband who will actually share the load um, and take on roles that um, were traditionally always, you know, not for men to take on and just to be unashamedly proud of that and just supportive of everything. I couldn't do what I do without him and um, in, in real, real, real life. I just could not do it. Um, and then I suppose my business partner, Mr. Ashley Gordon, who's a bloke who sort of would have been my parents' kind of age, but I don't see him as a father figure. He's a much more equal figure. And the funny thing is, politically, we're on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But we respect each other so much, we can engage in really interesting conversations. And actually, I say we're on opposite. We're not. We're actually quite overlapped in a lot of our beliefs around politics, which just goes to show that politics is just a fallacy. It's not really real. <laughs> Um, and um, yeah so that's I've got a broad range and you know what I've done though and this is what you're very good at doing is I've surrounded myself with people who add value and and who add something good to my life I've managed now I'm, I'm 41 I've got to that point now where I have no fear of saying no sorry no and in fact I get my EA to say no my EA says no to people for me so my EA I would not Kate I wouldn't be able to do what I do without Kate either because quite frankly, I'm just too much. Shout out to Kate. And yes. like, <laughs> she's just brilliant. So she'll just yeah, deal with whatever I need. She's fantastic. Yeah. You've got yeah. to surround yourself with good people. That's the key. Because it takes a village. It really does take a village. It does. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, and I know um, just a couple more questions. Um, I just I want, I'm curious if you have any personal projects you want to talk to us about. Um, I know that you're working on something, uh, a GoFundMe page. So hmm. if, if there's anything you want to share there. Yes. Wow. Well, this is an expression from the northeast of England where they say, what's for you won't pass you by. And it's normally an expression that you say to someone when they've broken up with their boyfriend. You say, what's for you won't pass you by. You know, what you're supposed to find, you will find. Well, I was diagnosed in August with an incredibly rare eye disease, which was a bit shocking, actually. Um, it's not going to kill me. I'll just go blind and potentially lose my right eye, which is a horrible thought. And I don't subscribe to that thought. So one of the things about this eye disease is that it's not been studied since 1994. 1994, do you remember 1994? I remember 1994. I was 14 years old and um, going on to 15 years old. And um, I'm trying to think what was big and famous in the mid nineties, like, you know, it's like Nirvana, you know. No, no doubt. <laughs> uh, yeah, no doubt, you know, all that malarkey. Anyway, such a nice time mid-90s um but yes yeah, so i was thinking well science has come on quite a lot since then you know the x-files that was the other thing from the mid-90s i love the x-files so science has come on a long way especially molecular biology so what we've managed to achieve in two months is we've raised some money on a gofundme and we've actually started the scientific research we've actually got papers and research happening already so in eight weeks we've gone from oh no there's nothing there's no treatments and no cure to me going okay that's not the end that's not the end of this for me I know too many people, I'm too well connected and I'm too bullshy to sit back and say, sorry, I'm just going to let my eye die. Not going to happen. So um, we've already started the research. And so in early, uh, early 2021, we should have the first results back from some of the lab work, looking at the RNA sequencing of this particular disease. Um, I was even willing to have a needle in my eye and suck my own cells out that are causing the problem inside the eye, but we don't need that. We've managed to find some donor tissue and various things, people that have had some surgery that we've been able to take um, 
using Essex permits that were already in place. Um, and it's just been wonderful. People at ANU and people at QUT here in Brisbane were already kind of working on similar things, but never this particular disease. And so if you take, it's very rare to think, well, rare diseases is another thing. So I'm writing a book on this at the moment and writing a documentary series on it, of course, because did you know 8% of people have a rare disease? Now that's 8% of westernized, diagnosable people, right? That's not everybody. Not everybody in the world has access to healthcare as we've definitely seen during the COVID pandemic. Um, and so would my eye disease be picked up if I lived in a different country that didn't have you know, ophthalmologists? Probably not. So that person would still go blind and wouldn't know why, and it was just an eye disease, right? So we say we think it's about 8%. That's over half a billion people have a rare disease. Um, and because this disease primarily affects women, women who are 30, 40, 50s, when they first get diagnosed, they've got no idea why it starts, how it starts, where it comes from. Um, and no one's researched it because it's so rare. We reckon there's probably a couple of hundred Australians with it, which means there's probably a couple of thousand Americans with it. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, that is not big. However, the molecular biology behind this disease could actually be a key to a lot of other diseases that affect it. And, and this causes an overgrowth of cells on the corneal endothelium. But there are lots of other diseases like Foop's dystrophy, where it's actually the death of those cells that's the issue. So if we can find out what's triggering these to grow, we can maybe use that as therapeutics on diseases where the cells are dying and they're not growing. So, I mean, rare diseases, orphan drugs, personalized medicine, genomic medicine um, is the future. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that we will get a treatment or a cure in the next few years for this. And I will not have to have hideous surgery and I'll not have to have donor tissue and I'll not have to risk losing my eye. I'm determined, determined to uh, change the story around that. And then start a larger conversation about genomic medicine and rare diseases, particularly for women's health. You know, we are so underfunded yeah. in the research world that I think genomic medicine is actually going to be a key to the rebalancing of gender diversity across medical research, which would be about time, quite frankly. That's an incredible story. And also just sort of the, the time length that you just mentioned and what's already happening in eight weeks is just incredible and just goes to show that people like you in this world really matter and is really needed. Um, that's that's Dr. Catherine Ball for you all, just pure drive <laughs> for lack of a better like way of saying it, but I am incredibly impressed and uh, we'll be sure to link out to that, um, more information to that GoFundMe as well as um, Girl Geek Academy. Um, but the the last thing I want to end on is just um, any sort of advice you want to give our audience, uh, those that are here today, wanting to just, you know, figure out maybe their niche in uh, with drone technology or um, kind of identifying a problem or making an impact in the world. I feel like a, a lot of the times I talk to people, uh, they're trying to just really understand what is their, what is their thing? What is their impact? What, um, how do they want to leave the world a better place? Maybe just like figuring that out. What, what kind of advice would you give someone? It's always best if you work on something that you really care about. Chasing dollar is fine, but if you really care about something, it pays you more than money. If you can care, work on something you care about that pays you money, then, you know, this is the thing called ikigai, which is this Japanese concept of the balance between work and personal and, you know, societal productivity the perfect balance of those things is this thing called ikigai this the place of 
how you find what feeds you, what clothes you, what houses you, what pays the money into the ethical bank account, but also what um, allows you to contribute to society and also do something that you want to do. Look, it's not easy to find your path into that kind of thing. We have to work. We have to have jobs. Um, I suggest that being a member of Women Who Drone is a great place to start because you're a part of a collective. And so when I finished my TEDx with that African proverb, which is, you know, if you want to go fast, you go alone. And that's fine. But fast is really exhausting. If you want to go far, then you're actually much stronger as a collective. And one thing I know about women's movement and the history of the women's movement um, and women's rights movements is that women are the ones that make change for women. We have some great allies with men, but it's women who have 100%, you look back at people that have made any of the change and it's always been women owned and organized uh, groups of people that have actually made the difference to things uh, for women. Um, and so there's something there that still needs to be worked on. We're still not balanced. We're still not right. We still don't have equal pay. We still don't have equal medical research. You know, we still don't have so many of these things. And there's, there's things you can get angry about or things you can be inspired by. And I'd like to think that all of us have taken some time to take stock of our lives this year. 2020, <laughs> what an ironic year for this to all happen, isn't it? 2020 vision, pure hindsight. How do you actually see the world in perfect balance? And it's not just about what you want to do. It's about what you need to do. It's about not about who you want in your life, but who you need in your life. Um, and I think we'll all be dropping a little bit of the vanity that's probably taken over society over the last 10 years, especially with the advent of social media. And I guess if you're ever going to create something and put it out in the world, just again, just imagine that your children might look at this, or your grandchildren might look at this. And are you proud of that? Are you proud of what it is that you're doing? Is that representing you? as a person and I've always been I've always had jobs right I've always worked I've worked since the age of 13 I used to always have like two or three jobs on the go constantly working so I understand what it is to have to have a job but on the side of that then I went to Africa and my gap year when I was 18 which was unheard of where I'm from um, because I wanted to be a medic and I wanted to go to Africa and I wanted to see what the world was really like somewhere so completely different to where I was from when we're able to travel again I'd suggest travel is certainly something we all need to um, do more pro proactively and more, more productive. You can be very productive when you travel, have a holiday, but also volunteer, you know, take some drone footage of some mangroves and put that into the drone cloud that allows people to monitor the mangrove health, you know, train up a local person, donate them a drone when you go there. So then that woman can then look at the mangroves and do that work. One of the first projects I worked on where we were looking at supporting some people out of um, the Pacific, lovely company, and their first job was counting coconuts for the women's collective. And I was thinking, why didn't you just train one of the women how to count their own coconuts? That's the difference. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Being the, finding the problem, not finding the solution. So the solution is just to fly the drone around. But the problem was these women needed to count their coconuts. And so attacking things from a different way. It, you can do that as a business. You can do that as a hobby. You can do that as something that you just enjoy to do. You can do that as a political movement. I guess that's the key. Absolutely. And there you are, everybody. Dr. Catherine Ball, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, we cannot thank you so much, Catherine, for just sharing your knowledge, your experience, and being an inspiration to our entire community. Thank you all. Please add me on LinkedIn. That's probably the, one of the easiest ways to add me. Thank you.